Amen. All right, church, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Revelation chapter number 19. Well, we're nearing the end. Uh, hopefully by the end of April we'll have finished the book of Revelation. Uh, certainly we have not plumbed the depth of it. We're doing the best that we can. Uh, of course, it took a couple of, uh, a couple of Sundays right around Easter to prepare our minds and hearts for our Easter Resurrection Day. And uh, Last Sunday we spoke about the resurrection of Christ from Acts chapter 2. When we last left off in Revelation, we were ended up at Revelation 16. And so today, what I want to do is just kind of give you an overview from 17 to 19, but really just preach from chapter number 19. And so those of you that are following along, as you pick up in chapter 17, you begin to read. Uh, once again, as always, man, the book of Revelation is just filled with some strange stuff, is it not? I mean, it is, uh, there's dragons and beasts and false prophets and uh, harlots and all these kinds of things going on all over the book. And uh, so we're to understand this book written in metaphorical language, teaching us very real truths about the difference between uh, godliness and evil and the cosmic power and battle between God and Satan, and that that is very real. The Bible says that as human beings and as believers that we wrestle not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and high places, and we are fighting against the spiritual darkness that is in this world, the devil, who himself is very much real. Now, if you were to open up to chapter number 17, you would find that in chapter 17 and 18 really is the demise and the fall of Babylon the Great. Uh, let me take a moment just to maybe speak into that. And so as you're reading chapter 17, you'll find that this great uh, city of Babylon really is one of the allies of the dragon, right? And it's just talking in that language, the fall of the allies of the red dragon. Man, we could make a book out of this, all right? And uh, so Babylon is this uh, city that is set on seven hills, chapter 17 would say. And if you were a first century um, uh, Christian, and you're reading this book, you would have no doubt that what is referred to in chapter 17, 18, and 19 as Babylon the Great here, the city of Babylon, you would understand that to be none other than the Roman Empire itself, that Rome is set on the seven hills of that city there. You would understand that the Roman Empire was destroying, hurting, persecuting believers all around the Roman Empire, and so that is that great city of Babylon. But the truth of the book of Revelation is that it is not just placed at some point in history, but that the language here, the metaphorical language of Babylon, is set in such a way so that we understand really what's going on is these epicenters in all ages, these cities and places in the world at all ages, whether it's first century Roman Empire or whether it's today's world, that these are cities and places in the world where wickedness abounds, where idolatry and false gods, and evil, and sensuality, and all of that is just in overabundance. So for instance, if we are talking about 21st century world today, we would say that maybe some of the epicenters or those that we would call Babylon in the Scripture would be something like London, and New York City, and San Francisco, and Los Angeles, and to Topeka, Kansas. No, I'm just kidding about Topeka. Just wanted to see if you're awake. You know, there's a place in Kansas called Manhattan. They call it the Little Apple. I, I would not say that Manhattan, Kansas is the epicenter of wickedness and idolatry in the world. But as you read through chapter 17 and 18, you find that what John is after is he is saying, listen, 
There is this beast that comes out of the land. It is this wicked anti-Christian government. And one day that will be put to destruction. And this false prophet is not a wicked anti-Christian government, but the false prophet is all of the false religions of the world that come against Christianity. And Babylon here is not some sort of Roman Catholic church, but it is symbolic here of epicenters and cities in the world that are just filled with wickedness against God. And by the time we get to chapter number 19, uh, you find that in 17 and 18, that ultimately when the Lord Jesus comes again, that He will bring justice and righteousness into the world. And those that have believed on Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who are a part of the church, not just Emmanuel, but the universal church, those who are a part of the body of believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, all things will be made right with them. They will rule and reign. Their deliverance will come, and we'll get to that in a moment. But all of the people in the world that are against God and antagonistic against Him, and they seek to spread evil and idolatry around the world, God will judge them with righteousness. For those of you who are my scholars in here and you like to uh, think back and forth, I'll get to everybody today, don't worry. We'll get a little bit of practical, a little bit of theology, we'll get it all in. But for those of you that are th- have read through Revelation before and you're trying to determine whether you're a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, no-trib, whatever it is, and all of the rest of our people in here are just kind of eyes rolling back in the head like what in the world is he talking about? For those of you that may have uh, made a mistake at some point in your life and thought that Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1 when uh, the Lord says to the Apostle John where he says, come up here and I will show you the things. He said, that's the rapture. John is called up into heaven. That's the rapture. Well, the only problem with seeing that is that in seventeen chapter, chapter 17 and verse number 3, the Bible says that the Spirit of God carries John away to the desert. Now where's the church? Is the church in heaven or is the church in the desert? So be careful with that kind of language. The book here is to be understood not as that the church has been taken out and all of these things are happening, but that the people that the Bible is being written to, they are suffering and hurting and going through struggles and trials. And John is writing them to say, hey, stay at it, be faithful, love Jesus, for I have overcome the world and I will come and make all things right. Christianity is not all about, here's a little pre-application for you. Christianity is not all about escaping problems. Christianity is about enduring faithful with the help of Christ until the King comes again. Amen? Let me just give you uh, maybe three... Three points today from chapter number 19. Those of you that keep notes, you just write these down and hopefully be able to bring it out and come with you. So I'm going to break chapter 19 apart for you into just three simple sections. And here are the three points. I'll give them to you up front. The song, the supper, and the sword. I tried to alliterate them there for you just so you wouldn't forget. The song, the supper, and the sword. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1 down through... Verse number 6 says here, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven saying, Hallelujah! And the word hallelujah in Scripture simply means praise the Lord or praise be to Yahweh that we give glory and honor. And then it says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. 
Why does it belong to Him? Because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot, that is Babylon, coming after chapter 17 and 18, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And in the book of Revelation, when you see the word immorality, it almost always speaks of idolatry. That is, God's people or the world going against the one true God and worshiping anything but Him with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time I heard them say, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fall down and they worship God. And let me just give you a side note to notice that almost entirely throughout the Scripture, when the word worship is used both in Hebrew and in Greek, almost always it is followed by people falling down prostrate before the Lord. And so think about that when you think in terms of worship. Worship is not you and, the, uh, you and the Pharisee going down to the temple and looking up into heaven and saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that person. No worship is always coupled with a bowed head and a humble heart that beats upon the breast and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Even the angels and even the elders and all of the world, when we worship God, we are to worship God with bowed down hearts because we are wicked and He is great and only Jesus can make it right. Amen? Verse number 4, And I saw these 24 elders and the four living creatures. They fall down to worship God who sits on the throne. Amen? So be it. Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you bondservants. I will recall your attention lest you think the church is somewhere else other than Revelation 19. The very first words of this entire book is written to us by the same exact word, John, the bondservant of the Lord. I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. You'll notice there in verse 1 down through verse number 6, four times the word hallelujah. This is the most direct reference in all of the New Testament to these words. And verse 6 is the last hallelujah of all of the Scripture. It means a praise. It is a four-coursed song to Jesus and to the Father in heaven and to the Holy Spirit that He alone is to be worshipped. And can I just say to us today, we must take on the tone of every passage that we read. And I want to say to every believer in the room today, there is coming a day when we will sing this very song to the glory of God and the honor of Jesus. Amen? He alone is worthy. He is the one who is sovereign. He is almighty. The worlds are in His hands. The governments are in His hands. The presidential candidates are in His hands. God is in control of the world. Hallelujah and glory to God. If I didn't think it'd weird you out, I'd make you turn to your neighbor and say hallelujah, but I won't today. The song is this for hallelujah. This language, I want you to look in these language of verse 1 through 5 for a minute and notice that it is the language, somebody pointed out to me this week, it is the language of victory. It is the language, I, I, get, I, I get excited, just verse number 1, because it says loud voice. 
Sometimes people pick on me because I'm a loud mouth preacher, but I just want to say something. The Bible says I can do it. Amen? I'm going to be loud here, and I'm going to tell you something. If you're one of those stuck-up, snobby, crotchety kind of people that just sit in church with your arms crossed looking to see who's here and who's not, you are not going to like heaven because there's going to be a whole bunch of people that have been redeemed that are shouting and praising and glorifying and singing at the top of their lungs for what Jesus has done. And you want to know something while I'm on? i got just a second. You know some of the same people that sit in church with the lip curled and, and can't ever even get out a holy grunt for Jesus, they're the same people that go to an NC State football game or a UNC basketball game and shout their lungs out. And if you can shout for the world but you can't shout for Jesus, something wrong. Amen. Amen. Don't nag it on, brother. I get myself in trouble now. Listen, it's victory language. It's a loud voice. Look at verse number 2. Because His judgments are true and righteous. Verse number 1, after the hallelujah. For salvation and glory and power. It is the language of victory. And I want every believer to walk away from here today. You may feel defeated. You may feel alone right now in your life. You may feel chaotic. You may feel uncertain about the future, about your finances, about your physical health. And I cannot control all of that. But what I want you to walk out of here today with, listen, I'm not being some sort of self-esteem preacher, but I do think that you should walk out of here understanding, be of good cheer, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. Yes, the world is rough and tough and hard, and we don't know what's coming in the future. But one thing we do, though, that's coming in the future is that we shall sing this song of victory. When I leave here today, I want to have a song on my lips of the goodness and the glory of God. Before I move, let me give a, a question and then an illustration. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you should always remember that you are under the Bible and not over it. But with a humble and a kind heart, you can ask questions of Scripture. You should ask questions because lost people will ask you questions about Scripture too. What is the rejoicing over in that passage? The rejoicing is over the destruction of the wicked. Right? Is that vindictive? Is that maniacal? That these people are rejoicing and shouting and praising God because uh, wicked people are being destroyed? Somebody might say that. I think there are a few things that I want you to understand about the rejoicing of the destruction of the wicked. The first one is this. I, I, this was pointed out as well too. That you can't just simply take one passage of Scripture and say that's all of the character of God. No, you need to take all of God throughout the whole Scripture and see what it reveals to you of the very nature and the grace and the mercy of the character of God. And from Genesis to Revelation, God is merciful. God is patient. God sends His Son to die on a cross. He he tells evil, wicked people, come to me, come to me, come to me. Believe on me, repent. I'm giving you time and mercy and patience. That's the revealed character of God. And so by the time we get to the judgment and the justice of God, it is righteous judgment. Look what it says there in verse number 2. We rejoice not because we have gone and bombed abortion clinics. We rejoice because of His judgment that is just and righteous and true. God never wants His people to enact revenge. God always wants His people to look to Him and give glory and honor and praise to Him and say, when you do judge, Father, it is out of a merciful heart. 
something else I want us to understand about the destruction of the wicked is I want, to, I, want you to, I want you to think about this. Part of the reason why we have that little rub inside like, ooh, rejoicing at the destruction of wicked people, part of the reason why we, we rub on that, we, we get frustrated by that, is because we don't have a real holy grip on how evil our own sin is and offensive to God. Our lies, our gossip, our anger, the way we treat people, our envy, our, our resentment, our vindictiveness, the way we treat others and the things that we latch on into this world, I want you to understand your sin and my sin is awful, awful, awful before the God of heaven. He is holy and pure and righteous and we are wicked and lowly. And it is in that sight that you need to understand the just judgment for sin. Nobody wants to say amen there. I don't either. But I need to go search my own soul and say, Lord, the things that I'm doing that I know that are sinful, they are not just to be swept under the rug. They are not just little white lies. They are sin against a holy God. And they, ju they justly require judgment. Here's a, here's a last point I'll make. I'll, I'll move with you. I think sometimes we struggle at the rejoicing over the judgment of the wicked because we are not persecuted like our brothers and sisters around the world. And that's a real small world for you to live in. That's a small sphere. That's a, that's a small world view. Because you have food in your refrigerator, because you have a car to drive to work, because you have uh, all of the uh, creature comforts that you, you think are okay, and your life is just so, you struggle with the just punishment of God upon the wicked. But I want you to understand that we have brothers and sisters for Christ all around the world that are dying and being persecuted and beaten and tortured, and we are to look on them and to say, hey, one day God will make all of that right for you. And we are to love and pray for and build up all of the brothers and sisters around the world. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are to worship God because one day He will bring justice upon the world. What's the application to take from, the, from, from that? The song. The song is over God's justice. And I want to say to all of us today that God is just. He will make things right. He will come back one day and He will put down the things that are evil in the world and He will lift up what is righteous. And do you know what we are supposed to do? We are supposed to follow after the character of God and we are supposed to live just and righteous lives. And that affects us whatever we do in our life, whether it's in our family, our work, whether it's in the voting booth, whether it's in policies that are being made. You should always fight and cry out in humility for the justice and the justice of God. Be on the Lord's side. Do what is right. Fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Speak out for those who cannot speak out for themselves. Follow after the justice of God. He will make all things right. Julian the apostate, 
in ancient history. They would call people by the way they were. Julian the apostate was marching on Persia. And uh, some of of his soldiers found a uh, Christian, a monk, found a Christian monk, uh, if those two can go together. But yes, he found a Christian. He's uh, living a desert life. He finds this Christian. And the uh, soldiers just use him as a beating toy. Beat the tar out of him, blood everywhere, and just mocking him and beating him along the road, put him in chains and drag him along. Just the wickedness of these soldiers. Finally, one of the uh, soldiers looks this uh, looks this Christian in the face and says, where is your carpenter God now? And the Christian spits blood out of his mouth and fighting back tears, he looks the soldier in the face and says, my carpenter God is busy building a coffin for your empire. Our God is busy now planning the reward for the righteous and the just retribution retribution for the wicked. That's the God we serve. And that's the God that we rejoice in. And we sing hallelujah to the God who makes things right. Let me give you a couple more points this morning. The Supper. Verse 6 down through verse number 10 gives us the marriage supper of the Lamb that many of you are familiar with. I'll pick up in verse 7 since we've already read verse 6. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited, who are brought to really, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And look at verse number 10. The screeching halt. Then I fell on his face and worshipped him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. I would say that we rejoice at the marriage supper of the Lamb because of its certainty. The certainty of victory. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And verse number, um, verse number uh, 9, He says, Then He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It has already come in that kind of language. It is eternally secure that one day we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb with the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say secondly, not only the certainty of the supper, but I would say the fellowship of it. If you're like me and you're a good Baptist, you like to eat a meal and talk with people. Amen? If you can't say amen about that, get a lunch over some Snoopy's hot dogs. It'll do you good. Even better, go on down to Circus Burger, get you a sloppy dog and a good old big chocolate shake. Fellowship. I like to to eat. Look, you know what it says here, the fellowship, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Hey, brothers and sisters, let me talk to you for a minute because in my Baptist heritage, I grew up with guys that talked about there's some great feast in heaven and, you know, glorified pork chops and all this kind of stuff. Listen, that has nothing to do with it. That's a direct reference back to chapter 3 of Revelation where he says to the worst church, if you open up 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open up, I'll come into you and I'll sup. I'll have supper with you. When we fellowship with Jesus now over the written word and through prayer and through service, we are getting a foretaste of what it will be like to eat with the Lord Jesus Christ and to fellowship with Him and to worship with Him and to be right close to Him. And I just want to maybe put this point of application in your lap today. Did you eat with Jesus this last week over the Bible, over prayer, over service, over giving the gospel to somebody? Why would you think, why would you think for a moment that you would enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb if you're not eating with Him now? Do you understand all these books being right? I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to get on anybody. Heaven is not so much about you, it's about Him. In fact, heaven, he, He's there, okay? Jesus is there. And if your great joy and the center of your life right now isn't to be in the presence of God and King Jesus, what makes you think for a moment that you'd want to be in a place where that's all there is? It's not about streets of gold and gates of pearl. Hey, whether all that's there or not, super. When you get to heaven, there's one thing and one thing only you'll be interested in, King Jesus. So let me just ask you, how are you doing with fellowshipping with Him now? You read the Word? Not out of duty, but do you read it and love it and seek after it and put it in your heart and cry over it and go out and live it and work with it and come back and say, Lord, I messed up. I failed. Spirit of God, help me understand, illuminate my mind. Do you pray? You pray for your own life and your family and your friends and your church and co-workers and the law. Do you live with Jesus as the center of your life? The marriage supper of the Lamb, it's certain, it's intimate fellowship. And it's a place where we are loved by Him. Amen? Johnny Erickson Tata, I don't know if you all know her, but uh, when uh, she was a young lady, she was in a diving accident and was paralyzed. And all of her life, she's been in a wheelchair. And um, a few years ago, she got married. And she tells the story when she got married. She said that uh, because she was paralyzed, she had to have her bridesmaids help to awkwardly put her in her dress, pick her up and put her in her dress. And she said, I just felt so awkward. I didn't like that at all. And, and uh, she said uh, they even put a corset on her and tried to fix her up. And, and she said, uh, I, I had a motorized wheelchair and I started to come around the side. And when I looked down before I even got to the end of the aisle, I had run over part of my dress and it was greasy at the bottom. And she said, I... I was just about to cry thinking about how awkward I am and unclean and wheelchair and all of these things. She said, I got to the end of the aisle and I saw my husband-to-be craning his neck with the smile that beams like the sun looking at me. And everything was okay. And I want to tell you today, with all of your baggage, with all the problems, with all the mistakes you've made, with all of the things in your life, Jesus looks at you and He loves you. And you're His. And you belong to Him. Amen?
The last one is this. The song, the supper, and the sword. You know what? I'm just for sake of time, Lord. So let me just point these three things, these things out to you. Verse 11 down to 21. It, the the Lord has the He is the rider upon the white horse. He has the sharp sword coming out of His mouth. But I want you to just see uh, four or five names that are given to Jesus, and these will help you this week if you just meditate on them. He has names. Look at uh, verse number 11, about halfway in. It says He is called faithful and true. Maybe Monday you could just meditate upon that King Jesus is faithful and true. He will never let you down and He will always tell you the truth. And then look at the end of verse number 12. It says He has a name written on Him that no one knows except He Himself. Maybe on Tuesday this week you might just want to meditate and pray and think about the fact that King Jesus has a name that nobody knows but Him. That He is eternal. He is beyond figuring out. He is above our carnal human mind that He is eternal in every aspect and that He is glorious. Maybe you just want to meditate and think about that. And then if you'll notice there in uh, verse number 13, He is called the Word of God. He is the eternal Word of God. And as you read your Bible on Wednesday, maybe you could just think about Him being the Word of God. And when you read the Bible, you're reading Jesus speaking to you. And so whatever it says to do and whatever it says that you can trust, you can trust because He is the everlasting Word. And then look, verse number 16, two titles. I'll take them apart. It says that He is the King of kings. Maybe on Thursday you might just want to think about the kings of the world, the presidents and the heads of state and all of the Congress. Brothers and sisters, I will tell you this. All of the Congress and all of the governments of the world one day will bow down to King Jesus. Amen? And He is the Lord of lords. Friday be a good day for you to think about Him being the Lord and Master of your life. Let me finish with this. I don't read a lot of fiction books. I, I, I have so many books to read right now that my head, sometimes my brains just bleed out of my ears. I read all these books. But I, I took a break this last week and I read a novel for the first time in a while. And wouldn't you know it, I, I picked a novel that was the most depressing book that I've read in a long time. Weird. I'm not going to tell you the title of the book. I'm just simply going to tell you uh, awkward book, bleak and hopeless. This man and his boy walking down a road of destruction. And the author tells the story from the man's perspective with his son and the whole book is wrapped around, the suspense is wrapped around that it's so bleak and so cold and there's no hope and there'll never be any joy anymore and they have one bullet left in a gun. And from the author's perspective, the only right thing to do is to commit suicide. But the world is so bleak. What I want you to understand is that there is another perspective than just the author that wrote that book. There is the eternal perspective of a God that really does exist. And one day we shall sing His song and we shall eat with Him and we shall join Him as He makes all things right in the world. Hey, you know me, I, I normally try to let us out right on time. Can you all give me three minutes, just three extra minutes? I just want, this week I've been meditating and thinking about this, reading this book, we've been close to my heart. And here's, here's the thought that came to that. Bleakness 
and hopelessness. Tests the reality of the supernatural. Bleakness and hopelessness tests the reality of the supernatural. One thing I like about the bleakness of the book is that as a believer, it takes away all of the little platitudes that we tell people. It makes all of those little things like it'll make you bitter or make you better or come on, it's all going to be okay. It squashes all of that and makes it flat. But it does bring a test to the reality of the supernatural. Told from the author's perspective, there is no God. There is no supernatural. But what I am telling you is that there is according to this word. And I'm not sure where you are right now, but I feel like God wants me to say, according to His Word, that when our situations are bleak, trust in the God of the Bible, and He will show Himself real on your behalf. Notice I didn't say that He will always give a miracle, there are times when He does. There are times when things are bleak and cold and desolate and hopeless. And God comes along the way and drops it in your lap. And it is beautiful and it is wonderful and it is worthy of praise. But there are also times when it is bleak and it is cold and it is dark. And you trust in the reality of God. And He comes to you on a cold day while you're sitting cross-legged in a closet through the ray of the sun coming through the window and your heart is warmed and for a moment of time you feel like He really does exist and that He knows your name. He'll come to you in a moment when you're driving your car and you feel like there's nothing left to do and you can't fix the situation but God becomes real to you. And He gives you enough hope to hold on for another day. That God is real. And that God will give us a song. That God will bring us to His supper and hold us. And that God will bring us the victory of the world. Wherever you are and whatever you're hurting with right now, trust in that God. Trust in the God of the Scripture. If you're lost, He'll save you. If you're saved, He'll hold you. This is the opportunity for us to take the Lord's Supper. And I was thinking early this morning about it. And this all fits really well. For you know what? The Bible says that in the garden, after they had taken the Lord's Supper, they did so and they sang a hymn together. And when we take the bread and when we take the blood of Christ, you know what we are doing? We are worshiping the Lamb who was slain for us. Did you notice in your text that it says the marriage supper, not of the lion, not of the king, of the lamb, the one that died for you? And what's the last part of the chapter about? The coming victory of the Lord Jesus. We do this in remembrance of Him. Let's have a word of prayer together if you would, and I'll ask as I do for the ushers to come to place. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do praise You and thank You and 
We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son and Your Spirit. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that does not know You and they're having problems in their own life, Lord, that they would come to Jesus and be forgiven, that You'd put a new song in their life and the assurance of future victory. I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here today that we would grow to trust You and believe in You even fuller. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.